Hey everyone, I'm Patrick Bignell, and I'm the student director here at the River Church. Thanks for checking out one of our messages today. We would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way to do that is to text RIVERCONNECT, one word, to 97000. Or you can visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and our upcoming events. If you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321 or you can visit our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the message today. As we begin, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, that's where the Sermon on the Mount is, that's where we're going to plant. We'll have a few extra um, verses as well, but Matthew chapter 5 is where we are. If you have your devices, pull those out. If you don't have a Bible app in your, on your device, you can download the River Church app, and we have, uh, I think, three translations of Scripture there as well. I always read from the English Standard Version, so you know um, what I'll be reading from and what I'll be teaching from this morning. Um, but to fully understand, again, this whole sermon series, or I should say not the series, but to fully understand what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to always go back to the Beatitudes, and we focused on the Beatitudes last year this time, and now we're moving further on in the message during this year and the next year during October, or September, October, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount again moving forward. But in order to understand where we're going, we have to understand where we've, where we've been. And so we're going to talk about the Beatitudes here for a minute, and that's kind of um, because I want to establish that, but I also want to give you a chance to um, know that before we get into deep today, we are following along in Jesus's sermon here, and his next topic is lust. And we were talking about sexual lust this morning. And so um, there, if there are any kids in here that are, I mean, I'm anticipating this is appropriate for sixth grade and up, okay, but if there are any kids in here that um, are any younger than that, or if there's parents that are concerned about that, we will be talking about Sexual lust today, so if you want to make sure you have your kids in River Kids, feel free to do so. Otherwise, um, you know what? Again, sixth and up, there may be some topics that come up. You may have to have have discussions at home this morning, but that's okay too. We need to be having those anyway. So want to make sure you're aware of that. So let's go back to the Beatitudes first, all right? It's the foundation of this message. And they're not on the screen, but if we go through the first about five, six verses here, you know, Jesus is talking about really what... um, the beati- what we're supposed to look like as a Christian, what we're supposed to look like as a Jesus follower. And he talks about the fact that we're poor in spirit. And if we just read these at face value, we can go, okay, poor in spirit. We're depressed sometimes, whatever. No, we're poor in spirit because we understand that apart from Jesus, there is no hope. We are poor in spirit. We are poor in our sin. We are poor. We cannot reach up to God. We have no hope apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we, somebody that's following Jesus has to start with being poor in spirit. And then you move to mourning. Well, we could think, well, you know, I lost my mom this week. It's that kind of mourning. It's not that kind of mourning. It's mourning. It's going from poor, being poor in spirit, understanding we need Jesus. We are mourning over our sin, mourning over what we have done, mourning over the fact that that has separated us from God eternally. And a person that follows Jesus continually mourns their sin. And that makes us meek. That's not weakness. That's strength under control. But it makes us, it makes us people that aren't going out and telling everybody about our strength, but that well, there's a humility there. And we want to be meek to people around us. We want to love well and love first. And that's a really quick synopsis of meekness. We don't have time to go into it. But then we go in that, and then we hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a progression in this. We want to go after righteousness. We want to look more like Jesus. And after that, we become merciful. Because we show mercy to other people. We need mercy and we in turn show it because 
We know what we've been saved from. We've mourned our sin. We become meek. It's a progression. And then we become pure in heart. And that connects a little bit to what we're talking about today. But really, it's about a laser focus on your life with Christ. The purity of focus, of purity in heart, going after Jesus with your life and pointing our life at his purposes and his plans for our lives. And then we become peacemakers. And peacemakers aren't passive. Peacemakers fight for peace. And then we are potentially and more than likely persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, as Jesus began this message, he's talking about how the kingdom of heaven had arrived through himself and what we're supposed to look like. The progression is what any disciple or follower of Jesus looks like. And the reality is it starts from the inside and it goes outward. We don't change our actions. We don't, we don't feel ourselves into actions. We act ourselves into feelings, right? Feelings are not what we base our lives on. We have to look to God first and let him save us. And so we hear the gospel. We learn what obedience to God looks like. We're transformed as we see what Jesus has called us to. And then we in turn love others and our entire person begins to look like Jesus. And it's a lifelong process. It's a great story from the commentator Michael Wilkins. He wrote about his process through the Beatitudes and how he came to Christ. I thought it was very appropriate to hear it this morning. He says this, not too many years after ruling out the Beatitudes for real life. In other words, there's no way I can live this. There's no way I want to live this. So I'm ruling out the Beatitudes. I sat under the brilliant stars in a jungle in Vietnam, and their significance overwhelmed me. I was a member of a cocky airborne infantry combat battalion. We were a well-trained, exceedingly efficient war machine. One night as I sat on guard duty after one especially ravaging battle, I experienced the reality of what Jesus addressed in the Beatitudes. I had killed gleefully that day. I had ripped the life from other young men without a twinge of conscience. I saw the bodies of my 19 and 20-year-old squad members ravaged by other young men who were our hated enemies, yet probably none of us on either side could really offer any adequate explanation for our animosity. That night I experienced brokenness. I became poor in spirit as I recognized the depth of my depravity and shuddered as I considered the possibility of my fate before God if he existed. I mourned at the evil in me and at the evil that I saw emerge so quickly in all of us. For the first time in my young life, I understood that I was not the invincible captain of my ship. I could be killed at any moment. So from that very night, I began to realize that there was indeed a very different way to live. I didn't articulate it that night in these words, but meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, and peacemaking all became so much more clearly preferable than the way that I had been pursuing significance and success. I now realize I was experiencing the beginnings of the pronouncement of aspects of the Beatitudes. I saw for the first time the horror of my life as a human apart from God. I desperately needed something, but what it was, I had no clue. I experienced the condemnation of my old cockiness and self-sufficiency, and above it all, the condemnation of my arrogant abuse of people and my quest to satisfy my own lusts. This transition in my life readied me and enabled me to accept Jesus' invitation to the life of the kingdom of heaven two years later. I didn't try to do anything to get to that place. It came about as it should in any person who takes an honest look at the way of humans apart from God. It came about as I realized in the depth of my soul that there is, an, that there is truly an either-or choice in life. Jesus' way of the kingdom of God or the world's way to destruction. It's no coincidence that Jesus culminates with either of these choices. So no, I didn't get anything, do anything to get to that place, but I now know that someone else did. Jesus says later in that last fateful night before his crucifixion that he would send another in his place a counselor, the very spirit of God who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what happened to me. 
And that's what happens to every person apart from Jesus in the kingdom of heaven because that's the only way a person can repent and turn to God. It is the Spirit's work of conviction that brings a person to the place where he or she can respond to the invitation to the gospel of the kingdom, and in that they are blessed. I mean, the reality is the Beatitudes call us to something different. And when we consider the gospel, that's what this is all about, is the gospel. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for every single one of us. And the Bible tells us that we all have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned. And that the penalty of that sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life. We can't earn it because we don't boast about it. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. And the reality of the gospel hit me in kind of waves this week. It really, really did. And a couple things. I sat with my mom for about five hours on Monday when we heard that it was getting really bad. And I don't know if you've ever been with somebody when they're passing away, but it's rough. It's rough. There is a death gurgle that happens, and it was all day. And I felt, as I watched that, that's what sin did to every single one of us. That's what sin has done to us. It's brought us death. It's brought us mourning. It's brought us pain. And that's why Jesus died in our place. So that even though we go through that, that's not the end. Because the second thing that hit me is tomorrow or Tuesday, I hope this isn't too much for us, but they're going to hand my mom back to me in a box because she's ashes now. Is that it? That's it? That's not it, my friends. Because there is a cross, there is a savior, and I know my mom knew him, and she met Jesus when she, when she took her last breath. And that hope is available to every single one of us today. And if you sit here today and you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if something were to happen to you, and again, not to be morbid, but you were in a box by the end of the week, What's your eternal destiny? Where will you be? You can know today. You call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that he is who he says he is, that he died on the cross. He's a son of God. He died for your sin. You ask him for forgiveness of that sin and that you believe he did what he said he did. He rose from the dead on the third, the third day and you'll be saved. Now, it's not just an easy, like, I pray a mantra prayer and all of a sudden I'm in. It's not about just saying words. It's about giving God your heart. It's about giving God your heart. Because when we realize everything we've been forgiven of, being poor in spirit and mourning over our sin, and we go through those beatitudes, that's when we understand what God has done for us. Oh, what God has done for us. It is an awesome thing that he has done. And he offers it to every single one of us freely. And that's where we have to begin when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount and even this topic we're talking about today. See, Jesus came and he defined the law. He defined what sin was. Um, that's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we, we talked about it a little bit last week. If you want more definition, you can go into, and go into our app and listen to last week's message. But right here he says, that we, we, we hear this phrase, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is saying, look, I'm defining what the law was. I'm defining what the law is and what it actually means. And so last week we started with anger. 
and how Jesus talked about how anger equals murder. Yeah, again, listen to last week's if you want some, some detail in that. But the other part of it is we have to reconcile with other people before we even come and worship God. In other words, if you're, if you're at odds with somebody when you come into church on a Sunday morning and you start singing and you realize it, you need to stop singing and go make it right and then come back. It's exactly what Jesus said. We can't give our offering to the Lord with animosity in our heart towards somebody else. And I had a lot of people ask me this question this week, and it's an interesting question. I figured it would come up. Can you be angry and not sin? Can you be angry and not sin? Well, by definition, yes, you can. Because God's word tells us that against righteous things. Are you ever? Probably not. If we're really honest, because we're selfish in our anger. Every single one of us, if there's a twinge of selfishness, I don't know that there's a time in my life when I've gotten angry that I didn't sin. I really don't know. I don't know if I could tell you that. In 44 years, I've ever been angry and not sinned. It's always been selfish. And I got to say, sometimes when we ask those questions, we're trying to go, well, I know I'm angry and I'm kind of, but it's something good. And I, I'm trying to, trying to justify that anger, right? I'm trying to, trying to work the situation so that I can feel a little bit better about that anger. Um, it is a major shift from what the religious leaders taught in Jesus' day because they were like, as long as you don't kill somebody, you're good. Be ticked off. You can be ticked off all the time. That's pretty much what the rabbis were saying of the day. That's not what the law meant. And that's why Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said, but now I say to you, this is what's happening. And I can't tell you how many times this week I have started to get offended and all I hear is some stupid pastor saying last week, what would it look like if you were unoffendable? Stinking pastors, in case you didn't know that, weren't here. I said that last week. I hate it when a pastor says stuff like that. Seriously, I'm not getting ticked off and all I hear is be unoffendable, be unoffendable. Shut up. <laughs> or I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off again. Driving is my, is my deal. I don't know why, but driving is my deal. Somebody cuts me off on, you Eddie, bad driver. <laughs> I did it. I asked Sydney if you see her. She's back there on the computer. I did it multiple times. My, my two words were are idiot and moron all the time. I suppose it's better than most, but I'm still trying to work on it. All right? And I can't tell you how many times that happened. You know, I pray that you experience some of that too this week. That maybe we can look a little bit, look a little bit less offendable. You know, because again, I want to ask this a question. What would it look like if the church was known to be people that were unoffendable? If we were unoffendable, what would that do in our communities? I think people might actually listen to the gospel a little bit more because we'd be different people. So that's anger last week. If you want some more of that, you can check it out on our, on our app. Um, the message is up. But Jesus transitions to our topic today, and it's all about sexual purity in our lives. And so let's read what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Let's go ahead and read it. It'll be on the screen as well. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that, than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus is again stating right off the bat what the Pharisees and the scribes had taught the people according to the law. 
Again, going back to last week, just a reminder, the people did not have the ability to read. They couldn't read well. It was a very illiterate culture. Not only that, it's not like there were scrolls of Torah of the Old Testament floating around the normal populace like we have copies of the Bible floating around or that are on cell phones because, well, they didn't have those in Jesus' day. And so they just didn't have that. Not only that, it was a double whammy because all of the time they spent in captivity, they had lost a lot of their ability to speak and read Hebrew. They only knew Aramaic. And so there was, a, there was a language barrier that had to happen, or that was happening. And so the teaching that the rabbis often had taught had been reduced to the actual acts of what it was. Like, anger, you know, as long as you don't murder somebody, you're good. No, it's more than that. Adultery, as long as you don't actually sleep with someone, you're good. Everything else is good. You're okay. Jesus says no. That is not what the law meant. Not only that, it's a poor interpretation of the Ten Commandments. I mean, they decided they had gotten around this by only talking about the actual act. Again, rabbis would take this, with good intentions, they would take like, don't commit adultery, and then they put a fence around that, and a fence around that, and a fence around that, and a fence around that, to where it became oppressive upon the people as well. They didn't want to offend God, and it started well, but after a while it became about maintaining power, maintaining the ability to be in leadership. And so that's what Jesus was fighting against here. And Jesus connects his teaching to the law and the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty seventeen. Listen to this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus is saying here that the very thoughts of desire for someone that is other than your spouse breaks this commandment because the very thoughts are covetous. We're coveting something we cannot have, nor should we have. And that starts our talk about this idea of lust. Now, the reality is the idea of lusting can be something more than just sexual purity, it can be after something, a new, a new thing, uh, what somebody else has as far as a car, or a, uh, even their marriage or their house or whatever. You can, be, you can lust after anything, but Jesus is talking specifically about sexual purity and lust here. And it's something we have to pay attention to. Really, really, it's a big thing is that we are living in a world that is extremely sensual. It is all around us. It is all around us. It's in our faces all the time. Let me start by saying in the church, we tend to talk about sex in a negative light. Now, we're not here to talk about marriages, and and we're talking about what Jesus has to say about lust here. Lust is a negative thing. But the reality is the gift of sex is a gift from God. It is an absolute gift from God. It's okay if anybody says amen on that one, all right? Um, But the reality is it is. If within the confines that God has given it to us. Because when, it, when we are able to partake in the gift that God has given us, the way he has given it to us, God rejoices over his people. He's a good father. He wants to give us good things. And it's not just about the, the physical act. It's about everything that comes as a result of that in a committed marriage relationship. It's an awesome thing God has given us, but just like everything else, our enemy tries to twist and distort it and turn it into something that it never was meant to be. Because on the flip side, sex can also destroy your spouse, your kids, your extended family, 
your place of work, and even your church. It is a fire. Fire, when used correctly, is great. Fire, when out of control, burns everything down. And we've seen it in the world around us. I can't tell you how many families and churches I've seen broken by what had been done. It happens. But then why does Jesus define lust this way? Why is he saying that by even looking at someone in a lustful way, you've already, already committed adultery? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. We're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit. So we have to consider what Jesus is saying here. All right? Because by this definition, there probably isn't a one of us in this room that has not committed adultery. And if you think you haven't, you probably are lying to yourself. At least at some point, every single one of us, I don't care your age, I don't care your gender, we've all lusted in some way. By the definition that Jesus has said, we've committed adultery at some point. To be honest, all it takes is really watching any, any type of television, even if it's just sports. An image comes on the TV and boom, it can rattle you, right? It, it, it's, just, it's right in front of us. Pornography is way too easy to get. And even if you're not looking for it, even if you're on a, a news site, it can pop up. It is too easy to get to. And how can we, so how can we live up to what Jesus is saying here? How can we live up to this standard that Jesus is setting? But there's probably some of us in here too that say, well, that's not a big issue for me. I haven't committed adultery in this way. I've kept away from this. But see, your problem becomes looking down on everybody else. Because this idea, I mean, just talking about sex, lust, some of us start squirming a little bit. We're like, oh, this is, this is awkward. We talk about a lot of other stuff. I mean, because this is a dirty sin, right? It's dirtier than most, right? No, it's not. No, it's not. Every sin separates us from God. Every sin needs a savior. Every sin bears a penalty. And what's that penalty again? It's death. It's separation from God. It's separation from every single loved one you ever knew. Which, by the way, I think that part of it is worse than anything else. Absolute and utter loneliness. Sin separates us from God. I don't care big, small, how we would classify it. Are there different consequences to sin? Yes. But every sin has an eternal consequence, and it's eternal separation from God. And my friends... We have got to get away from our classification of sins. We really, really do. Because I really believe that pornography and its different forms are killing the church. There are many of us in this room right now that are suffering in silence. Because you're too afraid to go and talk to anybody about it. You're too afraid to actually deal with it. You're too afraid to tell anybody you struggle with it. Because you're afraid, you're so ashamed of yourself anyway. It brings shame to you when you do things in the dark. It's scary. And to have any idea that you would ever be able to overcome it, you've never been able to. And so you sit there in silence and act like you're okay, but you're not. And it's probably for good reason. Because you've heard other people judge other people in the church because of their struggle. My friends, we have to stop it. We have to stop it. We have to make this a place where people that struggle can be struggling. 
where they can find help and hope. The gospel brings hope, not condemnation. And yet the church so often brings condemnation specifically in this area. And it must stop, my friends. It must stop. Because every single one of us struggles with something. Every single one of us has our thing. Every single one of us is a sinner. And every single one of us is broken. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a savior. That's why the Beatitudes are so important. Until we realize we've been poor in spirit and mourned over our sins, we can't offer people mercy. We simply can't because we think we're something special. We have to understand that we've been forgiven much. We have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of the very grace of Jesus Christ and our friends and family and the people around us in everything they struggle. Shame is a terrible motivator. It's a terrible motivator because it keeps us where we are. It is a huge tool of the enemy. We think we can never be free. We think we can never get out of this. We think we'll always be this way. Well, let me tell you, our God is a breaker of chains. And he does it all the time. But we cannot do it alone. We cannot do it alone. So what is Jesus really saying here? What is he I mean, he's saying we shouldn't even recognize someone that's attractive. That's not what Jesus is saying. Noticing that someone is attractive doesn't mean it's lust. That's noticing that someone's attractive. I mean, I believe my wife is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. I truly do. But there are times I notice that there are other ladies that are pretty too. Here's where it stops, where the problem is though. It's the second look and the third and the fourth, and the fifth, and it's, it's, it's the lingering look. It's the welcoming and the lingering look. It's looking for pictures or videos on the internet. That's where we cross over into sin. Attraction is a normal part of being a human being. The commentator A.B. Bruce writes, the look is not casual, but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary, but cherished. What an interesting way of putting it of cherishing that moment and holding on to it. And the reality is, sexual sins are always preceded by sexual fantasies. That's why Jesus is setting this up. That's why Jesus is telling us to not not even look at somebody the opposite of, of, of anybody in a lustful way, ever. And we see two examples in Scripture Two big examples in scripture. Put your finger here in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to see a positive example. Well, we're going to see a negative example first and then a positive example. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're not going to read through the whole chapter, but I want us to see the story of David and Bathsheba. You may know this story. You may not know this story, but uh, it's all through 2 Samuel 11. And so David is now the king of Israel. And he's up on top of his, uh, on his roof. And his armies are out fighting a battle for his country. He has sent the armies out. So much of the men are gone. And he's roaming around the top of his castle, looking at the kingdom that he has. He already has a problem. He is where he should not be. 
He should be out leading his army as a king does. But instead, he's, he's relaxing at home, shooting some hoops, you know, just hanging out. So he's where he shouldn't be. And then he walks around and he knows, hey, there's a pretty girl over there. He goes, wait a minute, she's taking a bath. He decides to linger and cherish the thought. And we don't need to go through the progression of lust. I'm sure we can imagine what happens because the next thing he does is he calls her into his palace, sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And now David's going, oh my gosh, now what do I do? This is terrible. This is an affront to the Lord. Uh, so he decides to bring her husband, Uriah, from, the, from, from really the front lines, back home, hoping that, well, that would just be, that would make more sense. The guy has so much honor that all of his men, he has more honor than the king, that all of his men are out fighting. He says, I'm not going into my wife. How dare I do that when all of my men are out there fighting and giving their lives for this kingdom? I am not going to do that. So he stays on the front porch for everybody to see. King David goes, oh man, how am I going to fix this? I'll get him drunk. Brings him home, brings him to his palace, gets him drunk, sends him back. He still won't go in when he's drunk. He has that much honor. So David says, oh, I got to make this right. I got to figure out how to cover this up. So he sends Uriah back to the front lines and tells the captains, when the battle is at its fiercest, pull the army army back and don't tell Uriah you were doing it. He murders Bathsheba's husband with his army. Yeah. I don't know where lust takes us. It went from adultery to lying and to murder. But then we could go back further in scripture a little bit to Genesis chapter 39, a few more pages, to the story of Joseph. Man, Joseph got a raw deal. If you know his story at all, he just, he could never, it didn't matter what he did, the poor guy couldn't win. He tried to do it right well, he kind of had an attitude problem with his brothers, let's be honest. When it was about the uh, coat of many colors, I think he took a little bit too pride in that coat and said, look at what I have, guys. Um, that's a whole other story. And if you don't know the story, you can talk to me later. If you're, it's okay. It's not part of what we're talking about this morning. So <laughs> Joseph had ended up in jail for reasons that were not his own. And then he ended up in the house of Potiphar, which was um, an official in the Egyptian government. And Potiphar said, you can have access to everything else other than my wife. And apparently she wasn't that bad looking. And apparently Joseph was a very strapping young man. And she decided to, well, go after Joseph while husband was gone. There's so many levels of this. He's a slave. She's the, you know, there's power unbalanced, disbalance, all kinds of different stuff happening here. But Joe, and, and, and. Honestly, the easiest thing for Joseph would have been to say, okay. But instead, he honored the Lord so much and he felt like it would be such an affront to the Lord that when she finally, he, he said no so many times and finally she literally came at him, tried to take his clothes off. He lets his clothes drop and just runs. The guy runs out the room. He says, I ain't staying here. This is an affront to the Lord. I'm not doing this. 
She's so embarrassed and ticked off, so she decides to declare that she was assaulted, and he ends up in jail for it. Like I said, Joseph gets a raw deal. Now, God uses it because of his time in prison. He ended up, after a while, becoming the second in command of Egypt and saving the entire known world from a famine. You don't think God's not always working? Of course, I, yeah, none of us want that story. But that's what happened with Joseph. He thought, I mean, and it would be, gosh, it would have been advantageous to him to just say, okay. But he felt so strongly about his relationship with the Lord. He said, "Uh uh-uh. Not going to happen. But the cool thing is both of these stories go back to God because with David, he confessed his sin and realized that against you and you only have I sinned. He came back. A lot of commentators, a lot of theologians believe that there was a lasting effect. Not only did the son that Bathsheba bare him die at pretty much the week after he was, he was born, a lot, of, a lot of commentators and theologians believe that he... David contracted an STD during that time and he was forever crippled the rest of his life too. Um, we don't know that, but uh, there were, there, there's some allusions to that in some of the Psalms. Joseph also recognized it was a sin against the Lord and he ran. He did it right and was used by God. So was David, by the way. Even though David had sinned, our God's forgiveness is greater. So as we talked this morning, if you've struggled in this way, don't you please do not hear what the enemy would want you to hear and hear condemnation coming from me. We have to know the truth, right? If we don't know the truth, we don't know how God wants us to live. But once we know the truth, we have to understand there's also immense grace and mercy to cover over the sin that we have committed. And there's grace and mercy when you run to his throne. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 because, so now that we've established that it can happen one way or the other, and Jesus, it's like, okay, Jesus, how do we do this? Well, Jesus told us in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. What? Okay, let's read on. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, um, okay. There's actually an early church father that struggled in this area so much, he actually did it. I I think, I want to say it was origin, but I can't remember. I I think that also doesn't sound particularly right. But I remember in my studies, I read that, and actually at one of the councils of the church, of the early church, they said, "Um, that's not how this works. (laughs) So it didn't happen again. All right? But what is Jesus saying here if it's not on it, if that's not it? Because the reality is, is if we stay in this temptation, I want to tell you, if we stay in the temptation, you cannot hold up under it. Because every single one of us weren't meant to. You put yourself in that situation with somebody that you care about and you decide that, you know, I mean, whether that's before marriage or if you start having, a, having a, an emotional affair, and you, I mean, we weren't meant to hold up under this kind of temptation. We weren't meant to hold up under it. Jesus is telling us that our reaction to this kind of temptation should be this visceral, this extreme. If something is causing you to sin, cut it off. Get away from it. Get it out of your life. Do what Joseph did and get out. Run. 
cancel your subscription to the movie package. Don't go to movies that show skin. And research them before you go and don't go, oh, I just didn't know. Yeah, you, there's on the here and you can find out what's on a movie before you go see it. Get rid of that social media account if you have to. Honestly, Facebook can be a great tool. But if you're connecting with former flings and you're married and you're starting to feel some sort of connection to them, get off of social media. That is the beginning of lust. Be smart. I mean, for so many people, if, they're, if, if you're friends with an alcoholic and, and they're at AA, you're not going to go to them and say, hey, let's go to a bar and have dinner. If you do, <laughs> you're not very smart. You're not a good friend. Is really what it comes down to. Just like an alcoholic can't go to a bar and should never go to a bar, if you're struggling with temptation in a specific area, cut it out. Get rid of it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth what it will do to your life. Guard your marriage. Put covenant eyes on your computer. If you're struggling with pornography, put Covenant Eyes on there. If you don't know what that is, that is an accountability software that is excellent. If you have questions about it, I know all about it. I can help you use it. It's effective. Throw away the computer or the cell phone. Yes, you just heard me say that. For those of you who don't know, I'm a very techie dude. I like my gadgets. But if it is causing you to sin, get away from it. And get your heart right with the Lord and go from there. Get accountability. Don't go to the beach if you can't handle it. Whatever it takes. That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever it takes. Again, not because sex isn't a gift, but sex outside of the boundaries is a fire that will destroy. It will destroy. What we need to know today as we walk away is that your actions indicate the state of your heart. Your actions indicate the state of your heart. Not only do words come from your heart, so do actions. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. My friends, lust originates in the heart, and that's at the core of who we are. When the Bible says at the heart, that's the core of our being. Our actions indicate who we actually serve. And so all this even goes deeper, though, too, because when we live this way, when we don't follow God, we're showing that we're not followers of Jesus because we have adulterous hearts. My friends, if you are gladly accepting lust, and sexual sin in your life, one of two things are happening. You have stopped listening to the Holy Spirit and you are in danger of God's judgment. Or you never knew Jesus at the beginning. Those are the only options. If you're accepting that in your life and you don't even care anymore, you've either seared yourself from listening to the Holy Spirit or you didn't know Jesus. Now, that's way above my pay grade to determine. I'm not trying to tell you that there's condemnation. I'm trying to help you know that there's real consequences to our actions. It's how we know what's going on in our hearts. We can't just sit here and go, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And in reality, come back and go, I don't care about looking at pornography. I don't care about it being an adulterous man or woman. Because it is what it is. 
It doesn't jive. It doesn't jive. The prophet Ezekiel would prophesy that Israel would be defeated and destroyed because of their adulterous hearts. They went around to everything else other than God, and some would be left alive to follow him and remember him. And in Ezekiel 6, 9, it says this, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. God's not pulling punches here. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. My friends, the reality is this. When our belief about God contradicts our actions, one of them has to go. When our belief about God contradicts our actions, one of them has to go. And for the majority of us, we decide to change our theology. And this is where so much bad theology and we get the Bible to say what we want rather than what it actually says. Because we have a sin that we love and we don't want to get rid of it. Please, again, know that my heart in sharing this is so that we know what Jesus says. There is no condemnation. If you were to come to me afterward and tell me that you struggle with this, you're going to find grace because I believe that's where Jesus meets us. But we have to know what sin is. And sometimes we have to be called out. And in our culture, we are headed down the path of sensuality. In fact, we're not even headed. We're 100 miles down the path of sensuality. So what are your actions indicating about the state of your heart today? Because external actions show our heart's attitude. And true disciples have eyes and hands only for their spouse or future spouse. What's the state of your heart today? If you're struggling, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to run to Jesus. And you're going to find him there with arms open wide ready to forgive you. I don't care how much shame you have. Take that shame and put it at the cross because he'll take it right off your back. I can guarantee you that. Now, let me also say, unfortunately, I can't guarantee you that everybody in the church, even at our church, are going to be great at showing grace. I wish I could say that, but here's the thing. If we look to people to save us, we're always going to be, well, we're going to find, be found lacking, right? I'm not even saying you've got to tell everybody, but you've got to talk to somebody. Take it to Jesus. I want to go, I want to go to, I want to, I know we're a little long today, but I want us to hear what David said in Psalm 51. This is right after he had in fact, I love, I love how he was restored because the prophet Nathan was a little, I picture him as a little old dude. Like, almost like the dwarf in, um, in uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, it's kind of how I picture Nathan, the prophet Nathan. I don't know why that's a picture in my head. And, um, and he tells him this story about how this guy had a lamb Oh no, he, he, this guy, rich guy, had all these sheep that he could sacrifice for Passover. And his next door neighbor that he was good friends with had this little lamb that he loved and he cherished and all this stuff. And I'm sorry, it wasn't about Passover. It was, a, it was a friend coming to town. And he had this little lamb and he had all these sheep, but, he, but instead of taking one of the sheep to, sacri- to, to, to kill for dinner to celebrate his friend coming, he goes to his friend's house, his neighbor's house, and takes his lamb that the family had loved and kills it and feeds it to his friend. And Nathan goes, oh, 
this guy should have to pay back tenfold. And he goes nuts, man. David's like, no, this shouldn't be. And again, dwarf in Lord of the Rings. Looks up at David and I see him point a finger. And he says, David, you are that man. And David is broken. He understands exactly what Nathan means. And this is how he goes to God. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth. What a verse when you're dealing with this. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you're struggling with this, This is how you go to Jesus. Because you know what? A broken and a contrite heart, God will never deny. He will never deny it. You will find grace and healing. But I also want to tell you that we long for healing in our lives. In this area and other areas of our lives, you don't want to know why we don't find it. It's because we don't go to each other and ask for help. One final verse, James 5, 17 5.16, sorry. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be what? Healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's why we tell each other. You don't have to tell everybody, but you gotta ask somebody for help. I'll tell you, I'd be honored to be that person if you're struggling. Because the reality is we cannot overcome what we struggle with by ourselves. We just can't. And we can find healing when we actually ask for help. We can find hope when we ask the right person. Prayerfully consider who you might tell that to. See, lust is a killer. And Jesus knows it. He knew it. That's why he set the boundary. As we struggle, take it to God. He'll change your life. He'll change, your, he'll change how you look. He'll change your mind. How does he do that? Through his word, by being around people, by asking for help, asking for prayer. You are more than an overcomer. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. It's about what he's done, not about what I've done, not about what you've done, but about what Jesus has done. There is hope. What is the state of your heart this morning? Let God search your heart and then run to him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, 
Even when we mess up, God, you can make us white as snow. You can restore the joy of, our, of your salvation to us. God, if there is anybody within the sound of my voice this morning that is struggling in this area, God, I pray that they'd run to you. I pray that they would want you more than the sin that they've been running to. And I pray that shame wouldn't keep them from you. I pray that, you'd hear, I pray that we'd hear the words that you spoke to us, God. And the Lord, we would be overcomers in this area and other areas of our lives. That we would look more like Jesus. God, wash us with hyssop and we'll be clean. Cleanse us and we'll be whiter than snow. We run to you today, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Mold us and shape us into your, in, into your image, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.